0: I hadn't noticed until I just read that, that the gospel writer apparently knew who was the ruler of Abilene, Texas, 2,000 years ago. It was Lysanias. The Bible is a wondrous book. Well, that's not what the sermon is about. I think all of us, from time to time, have a dream that goes something like this. You're sitting in a classroom, and the teacher hands out a test, and you realize with horror, I forgot to study. You look at the test. For me, it's always a math test, the worst. And it's even worse than you thought, because you don't know a single one of the answers. It's gibberish. You're going to get an F, everything is ruined, and it's all your fault. A few weeks ago, I had a preacher's version of this dream. I was in front of a full church, so I don't know where it was, but it was a full church anyway, and I was about to start the service. I looked down at my service book, and I realized that it was some strange kind of book that I had never seen before, some, some, some other denomination, unknowns to me. The organist was there waiting for me to say the first word so he could start it was like this. Looking at me. Everyone was waiting for me to begin, staring at me. For some reason, Ross Perot was in the front row, and he was very displeased with me. I don't know why he was there. And I was frantically paging through the book. I had no idea where to start. Clearly, I was a fool who was completely unprepared, everything was ruined, and it was all my fault. I wonder if you know this feeling, too. If you have your own version of this dream? Maybe for you, the dream is going to the grocery store and suddenly realizing that you forgot to wear pants. It's a common dream. Maybe it's more realistic. Maybe the dream is someone shouting at you who has a way of making you feel about that day. Maybe the dream is losing your job and not knowing how you'll provide for your family or pay your bills. Or maybe the dream is that someone you love has gotten so fed up with you that that's it. They're through. Well it doesn't take dr freud to tell us where these dreams are coming from very often i think we carry around deep seated fears in our hearts that we're not good enough that we've let everyone down that deep down inside we're really just failures and frauds this is actually rather common if you feel this way now, or you've ever felt this way, it can be hard to hear the words of John the Baptist from today's gospel lesson. Telling us to repent of our sins, to prepare the way of the Lord, to make that which is crooked in our hearts straight and the rough places smooth. An artist friend of mine from seminary cleverly made Advent cards one year. He pictured this wild eyed locust eating John the Baptist on the front of the card, stretching out his arm at everyone and saying, Repent, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And he looks at you like that. And you open the card and it says, Happy Advent, you wretched sinner. <laughs> Would you buy that card? You might. You could send it to yeah, your pastor. Sure. <laughs> If we made Advent cards, though, if we made Advent cards that actually fit the Scripture readings for the season, I don't think they'd be very popular. No one really wants their sins to be pointed out. It's the rare person who reacts well to having some failure or flaw of theirs criticized. Isn't that true? I have trouble with that just as much as the next person. I get defensive, sometimes. I kind of get my hackles up. I, I, I want to refuse to acknowledge that there's any merit to the accusation. Maybe I will later, but in the moment, mm-mm. Sometimes we cast around for something to throw back at our accuser, whether it's fair or not. We might feel like we're just about to crumble, like a dry leaf in December, since it only confirms how worthless we really feel. Or we might try to stop ourselves from crumbling by getting defensive and by hitting back as hard as we can. I think you all know this feeling, this dynamic. You've done it, I've done it, and we've all been in arguments like this that go round and round. What's going on? Well, part of the problem, I think, is that few accusations are ever completely fair and balanced, made with completely pure motives. People, well, they misunderstand us sometimes, or they overreact, or they distort the truth to serve their own purposes. People are sometimes just trying to make you look bad, and so we defend ourselves. We get mad. The other part of the problem is that like in the dream where you're in the grocery store without any pants, sometimes we are afraid that the accusations are true. And we don't want to admit them. We, uh, we don't want to admit that we're failures and frauds that everyone sees right through us. People find out we think it'll be all over. There's no forgiving what I've done. There's no excuse for me. There's nothing to do except make it right. And I've given up any hope a long time ago that I could ever do that. So what do I do? Well, if you try to expose me, to show me up, to point me out, I lash out from a deep-seated fear that you're going to show everybody the awful truth that would shame and maybe destroy me. I get afraid that you're going to put me in that classroom of my worst nightmares. With a test full of big red check marks and a big zero at the top, flunked and expelled for good. I wonder if you recognize any of this in yourself. I do. I wonder if it helps you better understand someone that you love. The preacher, Tim Keller, likes to say that there are typically two kinds of people. I like that old joke. There are three kinds of people, those that can count and those that can't. (laughs) Wait a minute. But he says there are typically two kinds of people, Pharisees and prodigals. Pharisees and prodigals may look very different on the surface, but at bottom, they actually agree about God. Because they both think that God is a kind of moralistic judge. Like Santa Claus watching to see if you've been naughty or nice. I don't know if anybody has watched that NBC show, The Good Place. Emily and I have been watching it recently. It's a show where everything you do either gives you points or takes points away in the great big calculus of heaven, the judgment seat. And you only get into heaven if your point total is high enough. Can you imagine that? There's a, big, there's a big scorekeeper in the sky keeping track of everything you do. Everything gets a point. Well, the good place. And there isn't. <laughs> well, Tim Keller would say that the Pharisees think that way about God, basically. And so they tend to be the religious ones in our culture. And they go to church for one of two reasons. Either they go to church out of a feeling of guilt and anxiety and obligation in order to get their point total high enough to get into heaven, or they go to church out of pride because they think their point total is high enough and they like thinking that their point total is higher than everybody else's. That's the Pharisees. The prodigals, you see, Keller says, think about the same way about God, but the the prodigal sons and daughters stay away from church because they think they can't possibly measure up. You know, If that's what God is like, I'm done for. I may as well not try. That's what they think. So they think religion is just a big guilt trip. and So they stay as far away as they possibly can. Now, I ask you, is that, do you think, is that what John the Baptist is about? Is he really just telling us to shape up and fly right or it's to the bad place with you? Is he telling us that you'd better study for that test? That you'd better be prepared when you have to get up in front of everyone and give a speech or lead a service? That you'd better not forget your pants when you go to the grocery store or everyone's going to laugh at you? Is that what John the Baptist is saying? Is that what the faith is all about? Well, that's all the season we're about. And I think the prodigals have a good point. Who needs it? I'll never measure up to that. No one wants a John the Baptist Advent card. Let's just skip ahead to Christmas. Better yet, the prodigals would say, let's just skip church altogether. Who needs all of that guilt? Who needs to be judged by some standard that no one can live up to? Why not just live your life, do your thing, and don't listen to any judge except the one that lives in your own heart? the kind of sense if that's what God is like I think brothers and sisters I think that that is the solution that more and more people today are coming to I don't know if our culture has fundamentally changed all that much in its view of God but I do think that there are probably more prodigals than Pharisees today the trouble is I don't think that the prodigal solution is actually any better And the Pharisees. It doesn't work to be religious out of guilt and fear. That's true. But it also doesn't work to run away from guilt and fear. We have those dreams very often for a reason. We really do have things in our lives, in our pasts, that we're ashamed of. We really are afraid sometimes that we'll drive away people that we love or let them down. And it will all be our fault. If you get rid of God, I don't think that you'll actually get rid of your nighttimes and 2 o'clock in the morning fears. You'll just have them alone. You'll have to bear them yourself. And the increasing rates in this country of depression and anxiety, alcohol and drug abuse, and unfortunately suicide... Do not tell me that we, as a people, are doing just fine on our own. But, my brothers and sisters, hear this good news. The good news is that the Pharisees and the prodigals both have it all wrong. We can't get rid of John the Baptist's call to repentance, and we shouldn't try. But neither do we have to be afraid of that call. The experience that we've had going through life of false accusation and self-interested blame, it may give us every reason in the world to get defensive. when Someone stretches out his arm at us with an outstretched finger to get defensive, to get our hackles up and to deny that we're at fault even a little. But the God who revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ is a loving God who is full of both grace and truth. I hope that at least once in your life, hopefully many times, you've had the experience of someone who deeply loves you confront you about some wrong you've committed. Confronting you not to tear you down, but instead to build you up. Hope that when that happened, you were able, even if not right away, to hear and receive it as a loving rebuke, to take it to heart and truly change for the better. Jesus showed us that God is like that. When he exposes our secret sins and tells us to repent, it's from a heart full of love for us. And for our salvation. His judgment is completely and always love. Love that you can count on. It's a judgment that we don't have to fear. We don't have to run away from. Not, of course, that we ever could. On Christmas, you see, God came to us all undefended. Undefended. Without even a word to say on his behalf. He came in utmost love, completely taking our side in the great argument between man and God. And one day, when he was all grown up, having lived among us as a servant, he stretched out his arms at us, but not to accuse or blame. He stretched out his arms on the cross to take upon himself the shame and the guilt and the failure that we feared would utterly destroy us. He stretched out his arms and was there all exposed, mocked, and humiliated for all to see. Yes, we did this, you and I, and it is all our fault. But it did not destroy him And wonder of wonders, it did not destroy us. He takes our fault and he makes it all his. He rose again and he came back to us, arms still open wide. And he invited us to leave behind our sins, to stop trying to hide from him or defend ourselves or win his favor, but instead simply to receive his forgiveness and know his love. If we do this, it will be like the prophet Malachi said, like a refiner's fire or a fuller's soap. That's to say, it'll be hard, sometimes painful. It'll melt us down, burn away our impurities, scrub away our guilt and shame and sin with strong soap. But because of Jesus, because of the God who came to us on Christmas and died and rose again on Easter, we can trust ourselves to the refining fire of God. The God who invites us this season to repent, to prepare the way, to make our crooked hearts straight and our rough ways smooth, is not against us, but for us. There's nothing to be afraid of. Will you pray with me? Merciful God, who sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation, give us grace to heed their warnings and forsake our sins, that we may greet with joy the coming of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer